If you're resting on one leg, the sous chef would come in behind you and kick your other leg so you'd fall down and tell you to stand up straight. I had to be firm, but I had to be fair. Um, and if you are going to criticize someone of what they're doing, you know, on the dish or how they're cooking it, you've got to be able to back it up and tell them exactly why. You know, the, the more you, you get told that you're not doing it right and, and someone directing you and, and pulling you up, um, the better you get at it. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. Where we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com so ladies and gentlemen my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable today matt moran matt thank you so much for being here pleasure mate real pleasure and um Thank you also, as uh, we were just talking, you came in and did a cooking class for our K2 Elites uh, last week, and they're still raving about it, mate. So uh, so thank you very much. But, mate, I've I got to say, when I when Renee told me that we had the opportunity to interview you today, I, I don't know if I was excited or slightly intimidated. Um, and I don't say that very often, mate. I'll be really honest with you. I'm not a, I'm not an, an easy character to uh, to move. But one of the things I've really loved about you and your brand at large is you, you are quite an assertive guy. You are quite a staunch guy, but you, you don't come across – uh, in an aggressive way, you just have this real presence about this. And my curiosity starts with this: Have you always had this real presence about you, or is this something that they take chefs away at chef school and you know kind of grate the edge down a little bit and make you a little bit harder? Or has is, is this been a part of your personality since as far back? Uh, you know, I, and uh, a lot of people say that about lo lots of different chefs. Um, uh, whether you're aware of not, Gordon Ramsay has been my best mate for 28 years, and, and people say the is same that thing right? about. Him. Yeah, when he walks in the room, you know, everyone gets intimidated because he's, he's a big man. Um, yeah. But, you know, under, underneath that sort of uh, facade is, is uh, you know, the most, um, you know, gentle, giving, generous man that you, you've ever met. And, and um, I, I suppose, you know, a lot of it came from one being in a kitchen and, and kitchens are very, um, you know, are very sort of uh, regimented in, in many ways and, and especially a long time ago. And they're very hard places to work. Um, they've always been, you know, high pressure and, and uh, you know, a real hierarchy system. You know, that, that's changed a lot. Um, HR changed that, you know, many, many years ago. <laughs> um, but I suppose, you know, being, you know, in the early days of doing reality TV and, and, and um, you know, you've got producers telling you to be harder and tougher. But, you know, I always had this, this big thing when I was doing that sort of, you know, reality TV that I had to be, I had to be firm, but I had to be fair. Um, and if you are going to criticise someone of what they're doing, you know, on the dish or how they're cooking it, you've got to be able to back it up and tell them exactly why. And I've always sort of believed in that. And I suppose it also, when you say that, it's a very interesting point because I think there's about 12 TV shows I've made, 12 different ones over the years, whether it's here and, and in the US. Um, 11 of those shows have always been female executive producers. And um, I obviously like strong women, and I like women that will actually say, Matt, that is shit, do it again. Because where a guy EP might be a little bit intimidated, especially later yeah, on. Fair point. I, um, you know, he wouldn't say it. And, and like anything, and I'm sure you're the same, is, you know, the, the more you, you get told that you're not doing it right and, and someone directing you and, and pulling you up, um, the better you get at it. And, you know, I've always, um, I've always found having strong women around me is probably a, a real plus because. They're very truthful. <laughs> well, so, mate, you're, you're, you're literally one of the most celebrated chefs in Australia, but also one of the most celebrated restaurateurs for all the dining establishments and, you know, uh, awards, but also your your brand on TV. So you, you're a very well-known personality. But I'm curious yeah. as to where where did it all begin in terms of from the, the kitchen perspective? I know you grew up on a farm, but um, yeah. and I'm going to assume, you know, just by what I've, I've seen and heard, that's going to have some influence. But at what yeah. point did you know that you were going to convert from the farm to the kitchen? And where did it all, where did that all come to? To, to pass the farm part of it um, had sort of uh, dissipated way before um, the cooking part did. So uh, we, we, I was born in Tamworth, lived on a farm for four or five years, 
And then we left and went to a dairy farm. And we actually left that dairy farm when I was about eight and we moved yeah, to right. the western suburbs. So I actually grew up mainly around Blacktown area. Um, and Dad had bought a, um, uh, a little place um, in Traralga near Goulburn. And uh, he lost all his dough and he made a little bit of money and bought this little place. And he used to make me go down there from the age of about 11, I suppose, every weekend and work. You know, so that's where the, the work ethic sort of came from. And yeah, I love right. that. Love that and what part type of, of work was that? Oh, you know, we might be, you know, drenching sheep, crutching, you know, gotcha. uh, lamb or, you know, um, moving sheep around different paddocks and, uh, you know, or there was always always sort of physical work, you know, to, to do on the farm. And we it didn't have a hard yakka. It's hard yakka, yeah. And yep. he'd make us go down there, you know, as, as teenagers. I've got an old brother who's a year older. Um, but then I wasn't that academic at school. You know, I was a little bit ADHD and, you know, sort of, you know, um, a bit hard to control. And, uh, and you know, I, I just didn't want to go on and do my HSC, which a lot of kids didn't back in those days. And they didn't in that so, area either. So were you a little bit rebellious at school? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, mate. I've, I've jumped out the window many times. Mum used to be at school, God, when I was about five, you know, um, five and six, you know, nearly every day, I reckon. <laughs> and so how did ADHD because I'm someone with ADHD I talk about a lot and we have a lot of uh, a lot of people who follow us actually who have who either have children or have been touched by it in some way so how does ADHD show up in your life and how have you learned how to manage it or, or use it I should say but I remember my father always used to say to me um, you know you've got the concentration span of a retarded flea you know I'd be talking about something I'd go on to something else and I still do that you know I, I interrupt people all the time and, and go off on a different tangent um, but always been quite active. So I just decided that I wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted I wanted a job. And I'd done home science in year nine and ten. And I'll tell you, not many kids uh, from Blacktown and being, a, you know, a big guy and, you know, played footy and sport um, did the, the cooking subjects at high school. Um, but the way I saw it, um, my mate and I decided that we'd do it. There was... Him and I and 18 girls, and it meant we had something to eat in the afternoon. So I did home science. I think I came last. I think my final final um, final dish in the exam was uh, banana split, which is pretty much a banana cut in half, a little bit of ice cream and chocolate sauce over the top. And I don't even think I bought the chocolate sauce or made the chocolate sauce. And that was it. So I failed miserably. Um, and then he wanted to be a baker, I think. And I, I'd, I'd done a little bit of butchery growing up with Dad and, and on the farm. And... Um, a little bit of work experience in a, in a bakery. Um, and I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll cross the two of them and, and try and get a job as a cook. So I, in year 10, I went to work at Parramatta RSL on weekends. Um, in the uh, kitchen? Uh, yeah, in the kitchen, yep. Um, chef de planche, which is another term for kitchen head. And um, I used to be the guy that used to run from the cool room to the, to the head chef when a steak was ordered because I knew what the different cups were. And... Um, <laughs> I remember watching him break an egg with one hand once, and he, he looked at me and he said, "You know, in this in this game, you got to be you got to be quick." And I thought, "God, if I could break an egg one day." And um, the, guy, the guy on the on the char grill had been there for about four years, and the guy on the deep fryer had been there for five years. And all the guy on the deep fryer wanted to do was be on the char grill. And I just thought, "God, if I could go from wash up to the deep fryer one day, I'd be bloody happy." <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's what sort of started the, the whole idea of being a cook. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know much about food. You know, we came from a very basic background as where, um, to us, you know, dinner was a piece of protein and, and three vegetables. And those three vegetables were generally boiled, you know, cauliflower, peas and, and uh, pumpkin or, or potato. Um, so I didn't really know what food was. And the RSL was probably the perfect starting point as where, you know, the, the sources came out of buckets and, and uh, most of the seafood came out of the deep fry, out of the out of the um, freezer. So you know, it, I kind of felt I was home. I was home at the RSL. But when they couldn't give me an apprenticeship um, after year ten, and my brother was still at school, he was only a year old. I said he was a year above me. Um, I just said to Dad, I want to leave. And he said, Well, you can't leave school until you get an apprenticeship. So I just went out and just would. You know, I didn't know what places I was. You know, trying to get an apprenticeship. I just RSL clubs. Restaurants didn't care. Just wanted a just wanted a job and had no real love for food. Um, but you knew you wanted, you knew you wanted to be in the kitchen, though. Yeah, well, or did you? At this really, point, 
No, I didn't. I really didn't. And you know, people, like, yeah, I just want a job. And a lot of people always think that you know, because of yeah. who I am, geez, you must have had this incredible, you know, um, upbringing <laughs> and you're a great cook and and you know and your dad and whatever. And that's not true. I hadn't had a decent meal until I actually started. Um, <laughs> I think that's why a lot of people learn to cook. That's why I learned to fucking cook because my mum, God bless her soul, she can boil anything to death, but she can't make it good. Watching this. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I just started looking for a job and it was a lot harder back then um, to get an apprenticeship. Um, you know, I went to, I remember going to the Harbour Watch restaurant in, in just below the um, Harbour Bridge there. It's now P1, I think. And uh, the guy actually said to me, he's honest, he said, look, you know, yeah, great. He goes, if the first 10 kids don't work out, I'll give you give you a call. So I just went for job after job after job and, and just no luck at all. You know, I just had no chance. Um, and then I went to a, a little restaurant on the north side, which I didn't want to go to because I was living in Blacktown. And my father, I told him that I you know, made an appointment. He said, look, you made the appointment, you're bloody well going. And it was an hour and a half away. So he made me go after school and I, I walked in. There's a little French restaurant and uh, the chef was there who was the owner and I saw a piece of paper and he had, to, he had to run off to take a phone call or something. And I just saw all these names and they all had crosses next to them. And I thought, Jesus, you know, he's, he's put crosses next to all these names. I, I might be in with a chance here. And, um, and he came back and I, I, just, I actually just went for it. I said, look, you know, I know I don't have a lot of experience um, you know, I've only worked in an RSL, um, but you know, I, I've got a really good work ethic. Um, and I just said to him, I said, if you give me a go, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. And because I said that, that's the only reason he uh, he said to me. So that was like a Tuesday, I think it was, and said to me, how about you come in and do a three day trial? You know, the Thursday, the Friday, and the Saturday nights. And I was still at school. You know, I'd just gone back into year eleven, I think. And um, and I went in, and I didn't think that I was that good, but I just could not believe what they were doing with food. Now, this is a, a fine dining French restaurant on the north side, which must have been probably in the top five restaurants in the state. So it was very heavily French. Oh, wow. Everyone knew La Belle-Helene, it was called, back in Roseville, it was like the mid-'80s. And, um, you know, possibly one of the best chefs I've ever worked with, and uh, he, was, he was a great man, Michael. And um, and I did the three day trial, and I didn't I didn't do anything that uh, that special. In fact, I remember one of the days he asked me to strain the game stock, and a game stock to me was you know you, you're talking bloody Swahili. I wouldn't have a clue what a game stock was, and all I saw was these bones boiling in a pot, you know, with chicken carcasses and, and duck carcasses and whatever else was in there. And uh, he asked me to strain it, so I put a colander in the sink and strained it out, and then got the bones and took them back out to him. And he said, no, no. <laughs> and I thought to myself, shit, if, if I throw that in the bin, I've got nothing left. And I said, I, I don't understand. He said, well, where's the liquid? And I said, well, I poured it down the sink. And he said, oh, he's head and I think he actually thought is, well, he didn't yell at me, but he, he kind of was kicking himself because, you know, I, I was 15 years of age. I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've told that story many, many times. And, oh, that's and now cold, mate. I don't know how many hours went into it before I poured it down the sink. But he said to me on Saturday night, he said, did you enjoy it? And I, and I said, I, I, I can't explain what, I, what I've seen for the last three days. And I got in the car and I remember Dad saying, you know, do you still want to be a chef? And I said, Dad, you've got no idea what they do with food. Like, you know, the way that they fan a strawberry. And, you know, we whip up egg whites and we make this, this dessert called a souffle, and it just puffs up. And I was just in in absolute, you know, wow. gobsmacked. And he said to me, Michael said, um, "If you want to, uh, if you want to go to school on Monday," and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "And you can tell him that you're leaving." And I, I, I was a happy state of my life. And wow. um, back then, you know, it was very different um, hours. You know, we we worked. So I went straight from school at the Bell, um, and we were doing six nights a week, so six days. And, um, you know, we would start anywhere between 9 o'clock and, and 12 o'clock in the morning and work right through six days. So I was doing, you know, from, from school 80, 90 hours a week. Wow. And uh, getting paid about 150 bucks. <laughs> wow. And how's the work ethic kicking in at this point? Like at this point, are you going, I can handle this? Or was this, a, was this even for you, pushing you? 
it was it was uh it was to me it was just like you know yeah, going to was was not really work i was just i was just learning stuff and and yeah, what right. i really loved was that discipline because in the kitchen you know there's i think there's about eight chefs at label um and we only did about 40 people a night and wow. uh, so it was very refined food and and uh and you know it was it was pretty tough you know i remember i remember sitting at the bench or sitting at that standing at the bench and if you're resting on one leg, the sous chef would come behind you and kick your other leg so you'd fall down and tell you to stand up straight. And that's after, you know, you might have been doing five days and you know, you're up to your 80th hour and, you know, you, you, you're pretty tired. And Sundays, it was right off. I'd just, I'd just go home and sleep. You know, it's my day off. But, uh, and how long did you do that? Ooh. Mate, I was at La Belle, well, most of my life now. <laughs> um, but I was at La Belle. I ended up being head chef when I was 17 and a half. Um, yeah, wow. And, uh, and he went and bought another restaurant, and I was head chef there for a while. And, and uh, so I spent nearly five years there. Um, and uh, I started my own little business on the side of making cakes and tarts in a little deli up the road. And, I was and so that was your first entrepreneurial venture, was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I was making more money making cakes and tarts than what I was. Like, and so, what spawned that little idea? Like, what was it? Just a little side passion, or is this when the commercialization and the entrepreneurial mind started to kick in? And uh, I, I think a bit of both. You know, I, I'd done a lot of work at the belt, and I was very good at it. And um, I finished college, and I went up to this little deli. Um, a very famous woman owned it. Um, a girl called Valley Little, who's now passed away, but she was the food editor of Delicious Magazine for you know twelve years. Um, this is prior to her be, becoming that. And I just walked in and she knew that I was from LaBelle and I just said, hey, look, um, I know you've just opened, you know, can I make you some tarts, um, you know, refined tarts and you can slice them up and sell them to your customers. And, you know, she was pretty clueless. She said, oh, look, just bring me some samples. So I took a, a, a you know, a bakewell tart or a winter fruit tart, mandarin, a date tart, maybe a chocolate tart, came back the next day to see if she wanted me to, you know, if she liked them and they're all bloody sold. So she made a fortune out of me the first day. And, I never <laughs> and, uh, and then in the end, what people were doing, people were saying, I've got a dinner party this weekend. Can I order a date tart? Can I order a chocolate tart? So people would order whole. Um, so, you know, I'd get, you know, 10, 15, you know, up to 20, 25 tarts a week. And, you know, I was making, you know, good coin out of it. You know, I was making 500 bucks a week. Just yeah, seven wow. Tarts. Back in the mid-80s, that was a lot of cash. That's good money back in that. Yeah. For cash. So I saved quite a bit of money, but I was still doing, mate, you know, 80, 90, sometimes 100 hours at La Belle. I'd yeah, get home wow. at night, you know, roll pastry till 2 a.m., get up at 6, you know, bake them all off and drop them off on the way. And so, so then yeah. what, what came after La Belle? Like, it, is this when you started to commercialise yourself and get, become a little bit more entrepreneurial? Did you? I was 19 when I left La Belle. Okay. Um, a little bit sort of, you know, I don't know whether I was burnt out, but I was a little bit sort of jaded. So I'd worked so bloody hard, lost my teenage years. Um, and I thought that I might go to Europe and, and work over there. And I gave Michael, I uh, would have been three, four months notice. And um, about, you know, probably you know, half of that had gone by. And out of the blue, I was at La Belle one night and someone else one afternoon, someone says, oh, it's a phone call for you. And I went, all right. And I said, who is it? And they said, oh, Stefano Manfredi. Now, you probably don't know that name, but back in, in the those days, Manfredi had a restaurant called The Restaurant, um, which was, you know, the talk of the town. Everyone knew, you know, it was it was the best Italian restaurant. It was a north, a family from northern Italy, and they were just, you know, they were, you just, you know, if you ever got offered a job there, you'd just do it. And he, I came to the phone, he said, oh, hi, Matt, you don't know me. Um, I hear you're leaving La Belle. Um, I just want to know whether you'd be interested in coming to work for me. And there's someone I used to go to college with and they, they knew that I was there and and, uh, and I just thought, God, I couldn't never give up that opportunity. So wow. I didn't go to Europe and I ended up going to work for Stefano and the family. And uh, I was there for a few years and, um, and you know, we, we, we won all the big accolades back in those days and he'd bought a little bistro in Paddington um, with a, another mate. And I think there was four of them involved in it after Paul Marion had left. And it wasn't doing that great. I think it's too many owners, you know. And, um, and he wanted to sell it in 91, and I told him I wanted to buy it. And uh, he said, oh, no, I wouldn't sell it to you, Matt, because then you'd leave Man Freddie. And 
And at that point in time, I used to go to this little Japanese restaurant. This is, <laughs> I don't tell this story very often. I used to go to this little Japanese restaurant in Roselle all the time. And um, I, used to, I used to love it. And I used to meet my friends there that I you know, used to work with and all chefs. And you go in there on a Sunday night, it would just be full of chefs. And I got chatting to the, the owner and the chef one day and, and um, he knew that I was working at Man Freddy. And he said to me, so you, you should come and work for me. And, um, and that was not long after I told Steve that I wanted to buy the Paddington Inn off him. And he said, well, you know, I'd lose you. And I said, well, I might leave anyway. I said, you know, this, this Japanese guy's offered me a job and I'd like to learn a little bit about that. So I'm going to leave anyway. He said, oh, who was that? And I said, you know, the guy called Tetsuya in Roselle. <laughs> 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 Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, and then I ended up buying Paddington, that was in 91. So that's, that was my first business. Right. And what, what kind of drove that? Was it for your a desire to have more freedom? Because since then you've obviously become very commercial, you know, you're involved in a number of different aspects of business. Uh, yeah. I'm curious as to the, the, the entrepreneurial development side as to, to that journey. When did that really start to kick in? Was it about that time when you opened your first restaurant? hundred percent. There's no question. I opened it with a mate of mine, Peter, who was ended up being my partner for 20 odd years. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, he, um, he used to run restaurants in front of house and I used to you know, run the kitchen. Um, I just, to be really honest, I just didn't want to be told what to do anymore. And I wanted to have yeah. my own. Um, and wasn't that business minded then, um, apart from running a kitchen. And, you know, we, we had some tough times in the first few years, you know. Uh, I remember the first three months, we're thinking, geez, this is easy. We've got so much money in the bank that we just hadn't been paying our supplies properly. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, were, we just didn't know costs. And, and you know, I think that was a very good lesson for us because we started yeah. surrounding with people that knew, you know, more than what we did. And and obviously over the years, you, you learn. Um, you learn from, from that and you learn about business and you learn how hard it is and, and uh, how to do the right thing because a lot of people in our industry weren't. Um, and, you know, we're all probably guilty of that. Um, but, you know, we, we changed our ways many, many years ago. Um, not saying that I'm the, I'm, I'm the perfect one or not, but, you know, staff and that were always very, very important for us. And, um, you know, Obviously, in your game, like um, talent is one of those things. And talent in any business is, is is something that can make or break us. Like, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in the kitchen when it comes to leading a team in a high pressure environment? Oh, look, you know, it, it's you know, as I said before, I, I think the the big thing is, you know, um, when you when you are leading a team, you know, firm but fair, especially in the kitchen, yeah. is, it comes into play so often. Um, and if you are going to, you know, bollock someone, and you know. Let, I'll go back a few steps. You know, when I opened my first restaurant for many years, I was an absolute asshole to work for. Uh, I was very tough and I was very disciplined. Um, and I think that comes from probably being young and having an ego and also having, you know, the, um, the thought of failure and not, not, uh, not surviving. But also the big part of it is when you come into my restaurant, it's Matt Moran's restaurant, and if you have yeah. something you know, that's got a slug in the lettuce or, you know, something's not right, you don't blame the apprentice. You, you go, oh, Matt Moran did this. So yeah. having a name on the door was a big thing for me. You know, everything mm. had to be um, And, you know, I, I, I was tough, there's no question. Um, but, you know, I, I realised very quickly, if you're going to bollock someone, you've got to be able to back it up. You know, and you can't just sit there and do it for no reason. You've got to be able to yeah. give them a reason and say what they did wrong and, and let's make it better. And... And, you know, I always used to say to my guys, yes, if I, if I do lose it or whatever, you know, at the end of the night, we're, we're all mates again. And, you know, I, I, I cherish my staff because I've had so many that have been with me for so long. Um, you know, I've had staff that have worked with me over the years for 20 years. Bloody hell. Um, been with me 15 years, 18 years, 17 years. Um, and to me, that, that's, you know, that obviously says something. One, one I must own too much. No, no, no. <laughs> we're, we're good to work. That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Well, obviously, you know, with the connection with Renee, I've heard nothing but good things as well. But um, so you opened your first establishment in, um, that was in 91. 91, yeah. yeah. That was yeah, with Peter. And then uh, we got out of that. Um, the landlord um, became a really good friend of mine. Um, his name is Bruce, Bruce Solomon. And Peter and I went and opened Moran's in Potts Point. And then, uh, and then I opened a little French bistro. Um, so 95 Moran's, 97 Bonfem, which is a little French bistro in Darlinghurst. And then I opened a place 
Um, and I don't tell many people this story. You was lucky you got out of it. Um, I opened a place in the city with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Kirk Pangilly, who was in a, in a rock band in excess. And wow. um, we opened a little place in a basement um, in Pitt Street, and it was an Italian joint. I never put my brand or my name to it. Um, it was just like an investment. And it didn't really work, um, but at the point in time, that I wanted to get out of it, I wanted to do Aria. Um, and I did that by myself without Peter. Uh, and uh, it's now a very successful strip joint called Minx. And I think, <laughs> and I remember, I remember when these guys wanted to buy it, like Kirk and I, and I Kirk, do, do we want to own a strip joint? And I think, and the at the time was like, no. And definitely a no. Um, and we're going to turn it into an Italian restaurant. <laughs> um, and then I sold, we sold Moran's, Bonfem, and uh, Quattro to then do Aria, which um, our third partner came in, Bruce. So that's I've been right. partnered with Bruce now for 21 years. And Peter, I bought Peter out about five, six years ago. So Aria is really one of those restaurants that um, you know it's it's a it's a brand name restaurant. It's it's a, in most cases a, a household name in Sydney if you've especially if you live in the CBD area. What was yeah. it that birthed the idea for for Aria? Like was was there a, a number of factors, or was this a, a goal of yours at some point to just do something at that level? Now what happened was Bruce, my my now partner, um, when I when I got out of Paddington Inn, he was the landlord. Um, he helped us get into Morant's and. I could never really understand why the landlord of a place I'm trying to sell was helping me get into another place uh, that he had no connection with. And I remember him saying to me, and he was quite wise, Bruce, um, and a big influence. Um, he said to me, he goes, Matty, you know what? You helped me once. Uh, uh, sorry, I'll help you with this. You never know. You've always done the right thing by me. You know, you paid rent and Paddington was busy. One day I might want your help. So he came to me when I had Moran's and he said, look, there's this incredible building that's being built at Circular Quay and, uh, you know, I want to tender for it. Can I just use your, your name and you can pull out? And I went, oh, yeah, all right, I don't care. And then, um, and then he came back to me and said, look, you know, can you help me with the kitchen design and whatever else? And he told me that, you know, I, I'm, if you know any young chef that wants to come in or whatever, I'll make him a small partner, 5% or whatever, and, and, uh, and I'll do it with him. And I, I looked at him and I said, mate, you want me to do it? He goes, yeah, I do. And I said, we're on a proviso, we're 50-50, and, and, um, which we always have been. And, um, and now we've you know, got 12, 13 places together. Um, and, uh, and he said, all right. And he said, well, how will you do it? And I said, I'll sell all the other restaurants because I had to, to get the, the capital to do it. And, um, and no one else really wanted it back in those days because it was a toast building. And it had mm. major, major um, opposition to it. In fact, most of the people that actually were opposed to it are now living in it. Um, <laughs> radio guys. And, um, and so we, we did a really good deal. You know, we had you know, a massive big fit out. We ended up buying the freehold later on, but um, you know, we had a big fit out and we had big rent free and it was the year of the Olympics. So, you know, and the millennium. So we opened just before the millennium 2000 and uh, we had rent free for a, for a year, I think. And, and, um, and we had the Olympics through the middle of it. So it, it became this phenomenal business. And, um, and uh, yeah, probably the best thing I ever did. You know, Nari's been now there 21 years, and uh, hopefully another 20 will be there. Yeah, so, right. So there's no plans to trade it? No, mate, no, no, no. Ari's, Ari's the, Ari's, it's not the biggest business um, by, by any means, but it's, uh, it's, it's the baby. You know, it's, um, and obviously yeah. you've done the Chiswick, Bangaroo House, the Opera Bar, North Bondo Fish, Chiswick yeah. Chop House. Out of all the others, like, are there any others that really stand out for you as like one that you either had to work really hard for or it was just you know, serendipity in the way that it came together and it provided you something you've always wanted that you didn't have at that point? Um, you know, Opera Bar, was, Opera Bar just started as a very small business but grew into a massive business. Um, mm. I, I love the business, don't get me wrong. Um, but you know, it's I'm not as passionate about it as, as what I am, and I, I suppose that farming thing kicked in again because we ended up, Dad ended up buying a bigger farm, and, and 20 odd years ago I had a bit of cash and, and we bought the big place, and there was other family members which I've actually now got rid of. So you know, Dad and I, Dad's got a 30 percent share. And I, I, when you say got rid of, are they buried on the farm? Does anybody know that they're they're, no, they're no, gone? No, no, no. <laughs> 
leave. <laughs> no, they're not doing on the farm. Um, so and, 20 years ago, you got in the farming again. So it was about, yeah. um, we're talking, so this is 90, around 2000 now. So what restaurants were you into at that point? And what spurred yourself getting back into farming? Was it the old man being back on the land and you wanting to get involved or, or did you actually see the, the, the bigger play? Yeah, no, it was more the fact that, um, you know, I had, might have been, yeah, it might have been around, it would have been around, uh, yeah, it would have been around 2000, I think. It might have been a year after, I can't remember. But but Dad had a, a littler place with his younger brother and um, and Dad was, you know, not 100% great with his health and it was just that size farm that he couldn't really employ anyone um, and, you know, made him a living, but he worked his bollocks off. And I just saw the opportunity to come in. They sell that, and we buy the bigger place. And you know, Dad can have some staff and and you know, not work as hard. Um, but always loved it. You know, always loved that side of it. And, and because I was in into you know restaurants and and you know, it, it really became apparent that you know restaurants wanted to know and needed to know their producers. Um, you know, because what used to happen, we just have suppliers that were just bringing stuff and that was it and over the years you know i used to go to the markets by myself and um and you know you go to the markets and i suppose it's a good a good analogy is where you'd go and there'll be a guy there that would have 10 trays of peaches every every day right and i'd go there and i'd go look man i want your best peaches and then he realized that you know if he just got the best ones out of those 10 and put it into one he could charge me five dollars more and realise that there was a market for quality, um, and because I'm the I'm the guy that needs the best quality, so you know that mm-hmm. markets. And then we went one step further because back in the day, I think a lot of restaurateurs were were not chefs as where now they are. Um, and you know, I wanted to know that that where that farmer came from, and say to him, look, this is what I want. I want you to grow this for me and grow that for me. Yeah, Things that you had right. So the connection from the, the chef to the, the producer became um, a lot closer. And, you know, yeah, obviously, yeah. Time, you know, I wanted Dad to, you know, um, have fat lamb that I could buy and, and, and beef, and now we've got little pigs and, and um, you know, I want to I want to do some eggs on there. I'm about to start building little eco huts, you know, around the place that people can come and stay on weekends. Um, I think there's a big market for it. Um, a massive market for it, yeah. Everyone, everyone always says, you know, when can I come to your farm? It's like, well, now you finally can, but you're going to give me 500 bucks a night. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, too. I imagine yeah. with the, the the quality of food that'll be on site, it'll be uh, worth a dance site more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, that's, um, you know, I mean, think about it. There's another guy's, they're doing Dan and Gunder guy called, uh, I think it's Kaimo, and they're, they're killing it. They've got little three little huts and you know, big spa baths and whatever else looking over this beautiful you know, farm and vista. And, and I think they're pretty much booked out now for two years in advance. And wow. like, that's, not, that's not a word of life. They are absolutely, wow. you know, you can contact them and they'll say next year they've got one day in July, one day in September, one day in October. That's it. Yeah, right. Yeah, just going nuts. So um, I actually thought of it before I found those guys, but, you know, it's kind of just proven to me. That really, Who is that you really, mentioned? I'll check it out. Kimo Estate, K-I-M-O Estate, but they go under the name Kaimo. He, he actually corrected me the other day. I said it on radio or something. Um, and they're, they're a big farming um, property where they've got cows and, and sheep. What a great and, idea to innovate yeah. the hospitality model. It's That's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's the, the next thing on the agenda. And that's what it is for farmers or, you know, our place is cash flow. And you know, that's the thing that we really suffer on the farm because you you're so involved at certain times of the year. Um, and, you know, it's been unbelievably hard in, in farming up until up until COVID-19, and it's been fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, it, prices, are, prices are great for cattle. We've had plenty of rain, um, which is good. Um, you know, we're in the central tableland, so we're quite high rainfall. But you go over the mountain, you know, down out, out west, and it's still dry, and, and we're still suffering from a little bit of water. We, we don't have the water that we should have. And yeah, the right. dam- up like that, but they're doing that. So apart from meats, are you also producing the the greens and other forms of produce for the restaurants as well? We're not, but you know I've got other guys that, that uh, we work closely with that we we uh, we get them to grow stuff for us. Um, and that connection with the producer and and, and the chef, um, it, it's so so important. Um, it it is, but it also makes makes sense commercially, like to have that supply chain. 
Uh, and again, not just commercially, because when you look at it commercially, it's a lot more sustainable when you have, you're not, you're not splitting profit across, you know, so many different players in the market. You're and actually creating, yeah. yeah. That's the thing with our industries where, you know, it, it is hard to make a, a margin. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've got to start being creative on, on how you can, how you can actually, you know, make those, those percentages up. Um, and if that's out by cutting out the, the, the wholesaler in the middle, um, mm. it's, it's better for the farmer too. Um, and I think that a lot more of that will happen over the over the years. There's, there's no question. I think Neil is Neil is doing the same thing. He buys mm. all his milk now through uh, David Blackmore, who uh, Cape Grim, and, and not going through the whole side. So I think that'll 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 happen more. And so now we enter the COVID era, and it and it feels like it's affected. You know, uh, not just. Uh, yeah. economies, it's affected lifestyles, it's, it's affected dynamics within even relationships. We're going to see COVID babies coming out uh, and yeah. some COVID divorces as well, apparently. But, um, you know, I spoke to Neil uh, a, a couple of weeks ago from Rockpool about how they were impacted and how they innovated, pivoted and have, you know, a, a transitioned and also attempted to transition some of their success and failures. I'm curious with your experience. And again, you know, obviously you've got your, your finger on the pulse across the industry. What's been happening with you What in the last three months since COVID has hit? And what was actually the, the scenario? Like, do you, when did it come on your radar and how did it roll out in your world? Yeah, look, when, when it's, um, I came back from, from the States uh, at the end of January and I think I'd heard a couple of cases here and there. Um, and then by February, you could hear that it was, it was happening more and more. And I remember we were having a, a board meeting, it must have been you know, early March, um, and we were looking at our figures across the, across the group um, for the year, you know, rolling into it and, and going, well, you know what, this, if this thing happens in, in Australia, what would our model look like if we lost 10% of revenue? And, you know, we looked at it and went, wow, you know, that's a big difference. You know, our margin, you know, sits around 10% profit. Um, and, you know, it's not just you wipe off 10% revenue and it becomes 9% profit. It's, you know, that, that's the cream bit. Um, and then I was looking at, God, what would have happened if it was 20% margin? And it was just absolutely devastating. Like, it was just, you know, we, our business was, was losing money. And then, you know, we just put the model up and said, what would happen if we had 50%? And we all just laughed and thought, well, that's never going to happen. And it was two weeks, two and a half weeks later, we were closed. We had nothing. Mm. No, no revenue was it? Not one, one cent of revenue. But in that three-week period of when it started to close down, you know, it, it's not like a um, – it's not like you know a small you know tinny runabout that you can just turn it around and and change mm. a, a direction. It's like a big boat, and to turn a big boat around, it, it can't just turn everything off. Um, so the losses in those three weeks were absolutely unbelievable. So we were basically you know begging the government to to shut us down completely um, because that meant you know rents and government rents and whatever else would just cease to exist. Yep. Because we churned, we were just burning money so much because you, you've got all your staff, but then you've got all these restrictions. So, you know, going from you know, ARIA, for instance, to say 1,500 customers a week, um, when we got restrictions, we're down to 750, and people didn't want to go out. Um, so, you know, you're doing 500 covers, but you've still got your whole staff. Mm. So, I, one, the last week, our wages at a couple of venues were, were over 100% of revenue. Wow. And, uh, and then you've also got, you know, and when everyone thinks the world's going to blow up, um, what do you do with your staff? And, and between Bruce and I, you know, there's about 1,600 staff. Um, and how, how, do we, how do we look after those people? You know, how do we, we, uh, how do we you know, make sure that, um, you know, they, they get their entitlements, their holiday pay? You know, and some of them have been with us for years. And, and we jumped really quickly and we decided that we would, you know, put in our own money and, and pay, make sure that every staff member got their entitlements, um, which probably was a bit too quick because JobKeeper came out not long after that. But yep. we paid we paid out everyone's stuff. And I don't know. I just I said this theory that if the world goes to shit, no one can ever say that you know Matt Moran didn't pay me. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I think it was really important to me. So we, we yeah, did I that. I can see that. Uh, and um, and you know it obviously. A lot of them were very grateful because they had something to live on straight away. But we did have 350 um, visa staff that weren't eligible. Mm. Um, really hurt. 
Um, we paid all the retirements at least, so they, they had some money. Um, I know some people probably didn't do that, um, and a lot of people went home, and you know mm. that's a part of our workforce. So you know now slowly reopening, we're trying to get as many of them back as, as we possibly can, so they've got some sort of income. But yeah, it was absolutely devastating. Like I, I just I just thought, how the hell um, are we going to get through this? And you know what what's it look like on the on the other side? And, I think the other side is probably just as scary, reopening. Um, you know, I, I think if you don't have capital now and you're going to reopen in September, it's going to be really tough for it. Yeah, um, I agree with that, yeah. We're, we're sort of lucky we were in a pretty good position um, uh, compared to some people. Um, and, you know, we're just sort of testing the waters by slowly opening and and making everything a little bit tighter and a little bit more limited so we don't mm. have to, uh, you know, in the kitchen we don't have a workout, so the menus are, a bit smaller, um, and you know, there's not as many in the kitchen, and uh, and we're just slowly opening up, and hopefully, you know, we'll, I don't think anything will come back to normal, and I think restaurants won't ever be the same, um, but they will be, they'll probably be ran a little bit better, um, and things that we never even thought about, you know, that we never used to do, that we used to suffer from, like, you know, at Aria we would have, you know. 15 tables that wouldn't turn up on a Saturday night because they could. You know, they didn't pay any deposits, you know. It's like making an airline booking, you know, if you don't turn up, you lose your money. Now, the restaurants never took deposits, you know, for unless there was a group of people. And it was just insane because I suppose we're all fighting against each other and, and no one really wanted to make the, the first call is where what's happened now is is every restaurant is taking a restaurant a, a, a mm. party. And I think in the four weeks that we've been reopened, we've only had one person not show up. So that that's changed everything. Because people would go, oh. take three bookings on a Saturday night and go, yeah. I'm sorry, let's go there, and not even cancel the other two. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think people now, um, because it's been publicised, understand that, you know, the restaurants and, and how they how they operate. And, and, you know, if we had 10% of people not show at Aria on a Saturday night, that's more than our profit goal. Yeah, that's yeah. So, so, so speaking to Neil and um, you know, obviously a lot of other business owners as well. Like COVID's had an, an interesting effect. You know, there's clearly been a, a mass level of devastation in a number of industries. Some industries have gone on to thrive and got even stronger, but yeah. some industries are in a bit of a hibernation, like like yours, the hospitality, the restaurant space, um, and even in this space, there's a lot of pivoting and a lot of adaptation and a lot of innovation that's taking place. On the balance of the equation, what has been some of the real positives that has come out of this situation from a, you know, a business perspective, uh, a restaurant perspective, or even just a self perspective? What's been the what's been the, the the upside of this for you guys? I suppose for for me, you know, it, it really makes you it really makes you think what what you need in life and what you want. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not getting any younger. Um, and if you asked me five years ago, I'd probably say that I want fifty restaurants. You know. And, have an empire and, and whatever else, but I think my whole uh, mindset has changed, and I think I want to diverse a little bit more than what what I have. Um, you know, hence the farming and and you know, little sort of accommodation and stuff like that, and not be just hundred percent solely reliant on on uh, on hospitality. Um, you know, the TV thing. You know, I'm not really sort of slated to do much. I just signed a massive deal last year in the US for four years to do a big show and. I went over to Mexico and, and made a the first episode, and it was more of a reality, but travelling. And the, our next port was uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal, and, and France. Oh, fuck. And Greece. So that's not happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think what it has made. You know, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants. There's no question. Mm. You know, price if you know fifty, sixty percent actually make it through to to next year. Um, so the competition will be less, but I think what we really have to do is stand together as an industry and try and change the, the dynamics and try and change the margins. Um, you know, if people want to eat out and, and eat, you know, good food, uh, you know, they're going to have to somehow pay for it um, because it's just too slim um, for us to survive now. And, and I think we'll be smarter at what we do. Um, and you know, I think labour is is a is a massive issue for us. So. You know, we'll have to change the, the ways that we, we do things so it's not and somehow try and find more margin. Now, I think the path that we were on prior to this was a, a, a path that probably 
was going to end somewhere along the line because I don't think they're sustainable. Fighting against each other and, and undercutting and whatever else to get a share. Um, and there's probably too many restaurants. I think that's all over the world. Anyone can open a restaurant. Um, you don't need to be qualified. Um, so, you know, cafes and whatever else. So I think it's, it's a really good reset for the industry and really mm. good for the individuals to actually make it make it better and right. Um, and I think so, yeah. So what is sustain? Look, I, I'm I'm noticed that something that you're quite passionate about in the farming area is the sustainability fa- factor or the sustainability aspect. What does yeah. that mean, or what does that look like from your perspective? Obviously, having a slightly different you know uh, view than the average punter or the even the average farmer, maybe I'm not sure. Look, you know, I, I you just see people's eating habits and and um, and how they've they've changed over the years. You know, 20 years ago, you, you came into a restaurant and you were a vegetarian. You know, you got a plate of broccoli. Um, and now that's all changed. You know, everyone's got to have that, that options, and and just by seeing the the quantities of of you know meat, fish, chicken, and, and whatever people are eating, um, it's definitely less of it. Um, and you know is where I think you know twenty years ago the, the plate the big portion the plate was protein and you know vegetables. Um, you know eighty percent, twenty percent, and where now it's probably fifty fifty. You know, but you've got a lot more vegetarian options too. So I think we'll be eating less meat, even though I'm a farmer, which I think is a great thing, um, you know, for the environment and whatever else. Um, I think we'll just be eating better quality, and that's where I want to make sure that it is, you know, the best of the best. Um, you know, and, you know, sustainable is where, you know, we're not fertilising and we shouldn't be, you know, we should be becoming more organic and, and biodynamic, which is something hard when you've got a father who's been doing it for 75 years and not wanting to change his ways. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that, that's slowly, that's slowly going to take place, which is, which is a good thing. Um, and, you know, we need as a country to be more sustainable. We don't need to rely on, on everybody else. And, and I think this is a great opportunity. And uh, that's, that's where we should be going. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was guilty of it, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, of buying you know, whatever I could from wherever I could in the world. Um, and, you know, I, I, you, you tend to lose, you know, the romance of it. And I'll, I'll give you some examples is where, you know, I remember, you know, asparagus on a menu, you know, we'd be using it and, you know, we'd be using Australian asparagus, which is great. And then all of a sudden go out of season and go, oh, well, fine, just buy it from Peru or Mexico. I don't care. Just have asparagus on the menu. And, then you just see it all year round, and you kind of lose that that beautiful romance of of what food really is, and and that mm. excitement. You see, it. so I banned all that stuff. You know, I said you, you can't buy stuff from overseas from now on. You know, when asparagus is in season, we're going to use it, and we're going to use it as much as we possibly can because it's local, um, it's cheaper, and it's better quality. Because you know, when a mango comes into season, the first mango is expensive. And then in the middle of this, and it's bloody average, the mango season in the middle, they're really cheap because they're abundant and they're beautiful. And at the end of the season, they get expensive again. So as a commercial thinking, you know, you want to be using things that are abundant and in season. So, And then it, it just sort of started to click. Um, you know, when you see asparagus for the first time coming in from, um, from Australia, you go, oh, God, it's great, love it. You use it. And then, then it goes out of season, and then you look forward to getting it back again mm. from you know, Peru or Mexico. And then it, it just, to me, the romance comes into that is where you get excited when you, when you see something for the first time and you go, right, now I want to use it on the menu. But it also makes your menu much more seasonal, which just makes sense commercially. So mm. I, I embrace that seasonality and having things um, that you don't see for a while, and when you do see them, you get I get excited. I get excited when I see the first cherries or, or my first white peach. Um, you know, and I used to say to people, oh, mangoes are in season. It's my favourite fruit. And then, you know, a month later, I'd see my first red peach and go, oh, it's my favourite fruit. But you said mangoes. <laughs> and then people would come in and go, oh, they're my favourite fruit. And I used to just get so excited. I used to think in my head that that was my favourite fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, mate, 
Listen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate, um, yeah, not just your time today, but also the other night for our, our cooking class for our K2s. But before we go, mate, um, obviously the, you've got a lot going on with COVID. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in the future, but I am curious about like what's next for you? Like are, are there any bigger projects or newer projects on the horizon that you're looking forward to um, to getting out there? Look, to be, to be honest, um, you know, the most important thing at the moment is it's getting, getting back to norm, normality and getting restaurants open and making sure everyone's all right and, and they're sustainable and, and they're moving forward. Um, I've always got a million things that I want to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are things in the, in the pipeline. Um, but, you know, I'm What's saying, one thing in the pipeline right now you're super excited about that not very, not very many people know about that you'd be willing to, like, throw a breadcrumb to? The, um, you know, the, the whole thing with, you know, the, the farming and having little eco things, they're, 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 they're going to happen. Um, you know, I'd like to get a bit more of a hub in Sydney is where I want a, a bit more of a commercial kitchen, not just at home, you know, where I cooked for you guys the other night, but to have a commercial kitchen is where I can set up as a bit of a studio and do multiple things out of whether it's, you know, if I ever need to go and do something now, I'd go to the restaurants and use their kitchen. I'd rather have my own and, and maybe put a little bar or something in it and you know, have my offices upstairs. Something like that. So do you see broadcast becoming a part of your strategy? More, more inc- Obviously, it's becoming increasingly more. Like yeah. and when I say broadcast, you've been involved in broadcast for a long time, but now you're yeah. doing your own broadcasts. Yeah, well, look, I, I will. I'll start to do. I'll start to do more and more, and and um, you know, and putting videos online and however we do that content, um, which I've always wanted to do. As for TV, you know, I, I like TV, but it's not my main thing. It never has been. It's always been a byproduct, um, which has always worked in my advantage because if I don't want to do it, I just say no. And, and yeah, you know, a lot of people just want to be on TV, but I, I never had that sort of sense of, I just want to be on TV. Um, so it's got to be the right thing. So, um, you know, if that happens, if the US thing comes back, it will come back. Bake Off might come back with Maggie Beer, I'm not sure. Um, you know, there's always opportunities, I suppose, and, and they'll continue. Fantastic. Well, mate, appreciate your time today. Can't wait to actually uh, meet you in the flesh and, um, yeah, try some of that incredible lamb. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Moran. Legend, mate. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.